everyone and welcome to the fourth of our CSF podcast focusing specifically on psoriatic arthritis. We'll be bringing you new episodes on a bi-monthly basis alongside our AXPAR podcast and we'll also be supplying you with monthly slide decks to help keep you up to date with the latest research to use for your own presentations and also the publications in the field of psoriatic arthritis. My name is Professor Peter Nash from Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. And we're very lucky today to have two very busy people. We have uh, Laura Coates, uh, the Associate Professor, NIHR Clinician, Scientist and Senior Clinical Research Fellow at the Oxford PSA Centre, as well as Dr. Frank Behrens, who is the Medical Director at the Goethe University in Frankfurt in Germany. Thank you for your time, everyone. And let's look forward to an entertaining session. Over to you, Laura. Thank you, Peter. So the papers we'll be covering in today's topical discussion um, highlight two interesting areas about modern therapeutic landscape in PSA. The first publication that we'll be discussing is looking at the safety and efficacy of upadacitinib in the treatment of people with PSA who've had a previous inadequate response to biologics. And that's looking through a three-year study to give us a longer-term outcomes. And we'll also then go on to explore an analysis of the real-world safety profile of tofacitinib in the treatment of PSA. So for the first paper on upadacitinib, I will hand over to Frank. Yeah, Laura, Peter, great to be together and discuss. So interesting, our topic today is in, I think it's oral therapy in, in, in PSA. So we will discuss two uh, check inhibitor uh, manuscript. Um, uh, interestingly, so our First paper entitled Upatacitinib in Patient with Psychiatric Arthritis and Inadequate Response to Biologics, three-year result from the open-label extension study from the randomized uh, clinical trials, the so-called select PSA2 study. It, uh, first author is Philip Mies. Um, what's the background? So I think we have a lot of therapeutic option in PSA available. We have a lot of data, but um, the challenge is we still have patients who will not achieve their therapeutic target. We can discuss what is the right target, but for example, minimal disease activity. So uh, currently only limited data are available on the subpopulation of those patients with active PSA who had an inadequate response to previous biological demotherapy, mainly anti-TNF therapy, uh, because normally the algorithm is starting with the conventional DMART and then follow up with the TNF in those patients without major skin involvement. And uh, the select PSA2 study showed that after 24 weeks of upadacitinib, there was a significantly more effective than placebo in treating patients with active PSA um, and also in those with an inadequate response to um, BDMART therapy. And the question right now is, Having this data in mind with, with uh, a one-year um, clinical trial, what happened in the next two years after these clinical randomized clinical trial, placebo-controlled, et cetera? And therefore, we, ha we have these data right now from the open-label extension study to sh look at long-term safety and efficacy of upatacitinib in this specific patient subgroup um, up to week 152. So looking to the results of the Initially, 641 patients from the original study, 450 patients entered this open-label extension study. And of this 450, 30, uh, 358 patients remained on the study for the whole three years uh, treatment period. Improvements in efficacy observed at week 56 were maintained through to week 152. So efficacy of UPA was established using the ACR 2050-70 response and 
we discussed it uh, already at the beginning that MDA is a therapeutic target, not a, a relative change. Uh, it's always checked for MDA and PASI 75, 90, and 100. Uh, when looking to the safety um, for the uh, treatment emergent adverse events, though they were higher for the higher dose of UPA, that's what we learned already in the randomized clinical trial, uh, the UPA 30 milligram is associated with uh, uh, higher numbers of treatment uh, emergent adverse events uh, than the approved dose, which is 50 milligram. So despite the higher treatment emergent adverse events rate in patients treated with UPA 30, uh, the safety profile remained consistent. There's no new signals consistent from week 56 to week 152. So in conclusion, the efficacy of upadacitinib remained consistent from week 56 through to week 152 in patients with PSA who had an inadequate response to a previous biological demand treatment. The safety of upadacitinib 15 milligram also remained consistent with this known profile throughout to week 152. And the results from the select PSA2 trial provide uh, needed long-term data on those patients who failed previous uh, BDMA therapy um, and uh, therefore support the favorite safety profile of upadacitinib. And uh, of course, we have data on those patients who failed previous BDMA therapy, but mostly um, on, on those who were in a randomized clinical trial. And here we have the data for three years of treatment with UPA. Yeah. So Peter, expected, not expected, surprising, um, or what's your thought on these three-year data of UPA? Well, a number of things spring to mind because clearly with the EMA restrictions on the use of JAKS, this is exactly the patient population that people are considering JAKS in. And I was going to ask Laura and yourself, has that EMA thing changed the way you prescribe JAKS? And is it now fairly standard that you have to use them in a TNFIR situation? Um, guys, what, what's going on in Europe and the UK as a result of the EMA ruling and where you see UPA as just an example of one of the jacks fitting into the PSA treatment algorithm? I mean, I think even before that ruling, the most likely thing was that these would be second line and beyond because biosimilar TNFs are cheap. Um, and, you know, unlike in rheumatoid, we haven't got data that says that the approved data, uh, the approved dose of UPA is better than a TNF. We've got equivalence data. So just like all of the other drugs, we've got similar outcomes for arthritis. Um, and so, you know, if all things are equal, then we use a biosimilar TNF first line. And so I think the majority of these patients will be second line, regardless of the EMA ruling. Um, and obviously, new drugs all tend to get used a bit later on, you know, in, in the patients that you've run out of other options. Um, I mean, I think the patients that we've used it most in so far have been those with axial disease, where we've got very limited options, and particularly those with axial disease and IBD, where you've got really limited mm. options. Um, and so having that new class of drug makes a massive difference um, mm. to what we can um, provide to patients in that in that kind of subgroup. But I think it has made us think twice a bit more, particularly in the older patients and the higher risk cardiovascular patients, because generally speaking, our PSA patients are not the healthiest of people. Um, sure. And so there are quite a lot of high risk patients in that cohort. And certainly it, it's made me discuss it a bit more openly with patients into, if we are thinking of um, a JAK inhibitor and if that is the right option for them, we've been very open 
um, and try to do as much shared decision-making as we can with the patients to talk about the risks and benefits of the drug. And yeah, Frank, in the, yeah. In the mainland? It, it, I fully agree to, to, to Laura's uh, comment. Um, I think the costs maybe is a little bit different in, in Germany compared to UK. Of course, we were asked to prescribe the cheapest option in case that we have different options who were absolutely equivalent. But the oral versus the sub-Q uh, makes immediately a difference uh, showing that there's no equivalence between a TNF bio, biosimilar compared to a tablet. Uh, therefore, if we have good reasons to prescribe UPA after failing a conventional DMART or any other uh, check inhibitor, uh, we can we can convince also the the um, insurance uh, to to allow us to prescribe if you have good arguments why an oral treatment is is appropriate in this individual patients. But um, I think um, uh, Laura raised an important point. The question is how frequent is this specific at risk population seen in danger in in the oral surveillance study in our PSA population. I think in the PSA population, we have some advantages or disadvantages compared to RA. On the one hand, uh, it, we have younger people. Um, we have people maybe with less uh, a chronic uh, comorbid conditions, but we are uh, all, and uh, an advantage, we have less steroid use in PSA compared to RA, but maybe we have more, a higher risk for cardiovascular events. Maybe um, most of you are aware of studies where you have, Asymptomatic male psoriasis patient with high BMI, high uh, high burden of psoriasis, skin psoriasis, and and you make an uh, heart CT or MRI and see a lot of calcification, uh, which is exactly what we have learned in the past that the calcificating uh, cardiovascular disease are those of the highest risk. So that's a challenge we have to deal with. So uh, on the one hand, younger and and more relaxed and and not uh, at high risk. But on the other hand, specific vascular risk seems to be increased in PSA patients. And that's a challenge we have to deal with. So in Germany, we have a clear rule. Um, there is a specific um, um, questionnaire uh, built up by the German Society of Rheumatology, a kind of checklist. Um, and if you fulfill criteria where you got this warning and ruling from EMA, you have to, uh, have to discuss specifically these items with your patients. And if you got a good argument and the patient signs also that he is agreeing to do it despite the fact that there might be an increased risk, then we can prescribe it. So it's a very clear pathway forward how to handle it. Um, but I think we have not fully understand our, whether we are on the safe side in our patient population or whether we have this increased risk. So that's a challenge we have to deal with. It is a challenge, isn't it? And now, like GRAP has always been focused on the comorbidities and added them again and highlighted them again with the latest update. And then it becomes, I feel like a dinosaur, becomes who is responsible for starting the statin? Who's responsible for guaranteeing the vaccination? Who is responsible for checking the blood pressure? And, you know, we see results come across our desk with these patients all the time. We see their lipids. And I, when I interact with the referring GPs, they say, well, if the fancy specialist doesn't think it's important enough to start a statin, why should I? Mm. So I think my younger colleagues ref almost refused to. They sent it back to be done by somebody else because I don't know if they think they can do it better or whatever. But I get the feeling we should start and ask the general practitioner to monitor change and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What's the situation in the UK, Laura? 
Are you the so, commencer of statins or a highly recommender? Definitely not. So we're not meant to prescribe anything that isn't a DMARD um, directly for our patients. The other prescriptions are meant to come through the GP. So if it's specific, you know, if we're starting really? biologics or conventional DMARDs, or, you know, if we want to give steroids, um, for example, we would prescribe. <coughs> but um, for other drugs, it's theoretically at least meant to come through the GP. We have got a lot of pressure on our GPs um, who are struggling. Um, so I think that's that's difficult to put that onto them. I think there is an argument that if you're um, monitoring and dealing with multiple cardiovascular risk factors, GPs probably are best to do that. They're probably best at, you know, blood pressure medication. I'm I'm not up to date on what the best combinations would be or how to pick the right antihypertensive I think statins are a bit easier because um you generally just try one um so I, I think there is an argument that they are better placed to do that but it's it's trying to I guess bring their attention to that um and focus attention for those patients um there was some nice there was a nice study from Leahy um I think at ACR last year looking at cardiovascular risk and the um the activity of the psoriatic arthritis, so joint counts and things, didn't really seem to add to any predictive model of risk factors. Nearly all of the risk factor for the cardiovascular disease was the traditional stuff. It was the diabetes and the blood pressure and the cholesterol. Um, so I don't think um, our role is quite as important in that um, as the GPs probably is. But I agree that where we can and where we're working together and where we're picking things up, we should ideally be acting on that and talking to patients about it as well. Frank, are you a statin starter or does it all go back <laughs> to the referring doctor? Yeah, yeah, I'm a statin starter. But, uh, but I think the challenge is right now, though, we have agreed on all the uh, um, either European or US uh, uh, European uh, consortia that we are responsible for dealing with the cardiovascular risk. It doesn't mean that we, we have to treat them appropriate, but we have to manage it anyway. So, and, and normally we, we say, please GP do this and that, and please take care of and keep in mind uh, that blah, blah, blah. And then, then you come back three months later, nothing happened. And then you write it again. And then uh, three months back again, nothing happened. So if I'm responsible and I delegate something to do, but it's not happened, what shall I do? Then, mm -hmm. then either I, I, I ignore it, or I do it by myself. And of course, in Germany, um, you have to be first uh, being uh, um, a qualified and, and uh, a internal medicine person. And yeah. then you were qualified as a rheumatologist in addition. So everybody says, come on, guys, you are an internal medicine specialist anyway. So uh, plus rheumatologist. So now take your head on as an internal medicine specialist and deal it. Um, and and uh, that's the challenge we have. But uh, we have so limited numbers of rheumatologists in Germany. We have roughly 800. And, and the requirement, uh, according to 82 million, is, is 2,000 2, roughly. But uh, we have limited resources. That's the challenge we have mm -hmm. to deal with. But if the GP is not following what we are doing, then, of course, we prescribe. Okay, well, that's good. Well, I'm going to throw another thing out there. This is my current bugbear. <clears throat> Obesity. We left all those fancy obesity drugs to the endocrinologists, but a nice presentation at Milan showed you reduced mace, sudden death, stroke, MI, and all our, not all, many PSA patients, metabolic syndrome, overweight. These obesity drugs even reduce gouty flares, which our patients get. 
So I think at least in the next Grappa meeting, we've got to highlight the new obesity drugs. We have to get our head around them and we have to even think about prescribing them. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the the data behind them is amazing um, for, that we've seen from some of the obesity teams. Um, in the UK, there's quite a lot of restrictions around prescribing them. So you have to meet varying criteria and that's generally done through a sort of specialist obesity service. Um, where they go through kind of dietary advice and other stuff as a step up kind of process. Um, so we uh, I looked into this recently for a patient of mine who's very keen to have treatment. Um, but there, there are quite a lot of hoops and, and it's very much designed to be referred from primary care, um, not not between specialists in the hospital. Um, and obviously, the other problem is getting hold of them. You know, I know from from other colleagues that diabetic patients who are already prescribed them can no longer get supplies because they essentially can't make enough. <laughs> um, Kim so Kardashian's the other... taking, taking the world supply, <laughs> that's why. Yeah, yeah, so we, I, we, I agree we, we're going to have to do something with it. We, we don't have this issue in Germany. We are sportive and uh, healthy in Germany. Yeah, You see it on our, <laughs> you, you see it on our, our chancellor. He was injured on the eyes. <laughs> Uh, by jogging through, running through Berlin. Uh, that's, that's, that's what we have. We have more risk for getting injured during our sporty exercises compared to have any risk on the obesity choking. Uh, uh, I think it's, it's, an important, it's an important issue to address it, whether if, you're absolutely right, Peter. So if we're dealing uh, uh, with, the, with the associated diseases and the comorbid conditions in PSA, um, and talking about increased, still increased mortality based on, on uh, increased numbers of myocardial uh, infarction or major cardiovascular events, then of course we have to give advice what to do. This is why treatment recommendations are uh, uh, in place. And, and if we believe yes. that this is part of our job to, of course, the best outcome is always to reduce mortality. Um, and, and if we have to add it to this to the armamentarium to control <laughs> To control our risk factors in this specific population, maybe we have to 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 sum up and and give some advices and and write it down at least. Yeah. yeah. But we have another uh, course, uh, manuscript. Very, we're very successful at stopping our patients smoking, of course, but uh, that's another matter. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Let's get back to let's get back to Bacinib just very briefly. So it covers all the domains, um, axial, whatever. But I was impressed with the TNFIR skin results, 60, 40, 20 yeah. for the PASI 75 is better than Tofer and better than I expected, better than methotrexate, better than you expected. So it has some reasonable skin data. Um, and I think that's a plus, Laura, to be able to cover off that domain. I haven't seen yeah, any nail data. I haven't seen nail data. Um, I'm not sure I've seen much. In, yeah, it's got um, radio radiographic progression inhibition data. So, you know, what do you think of that skin domain? Yeah, I think, like you say, possibly a little bit better than we expected. Um, in the head-to-head -head study with Adalumab, it showed quite similar outcomes, maybe a little bit lower, but not by much, um, mm. which uh, I think is really positive. Um, and obviously, for the vast majority of our patients, the skin is not terrible. Uh, you know, uh, nearly all of them have psoriasis, but a lot of them have psoriasis at the milder end. Um, and this should cover that quite well. Okay, so let's move on to our, the second paper. Over to you, Laura. Lovely. So the second paper is uh, post-marketing safety surveillance of tofacitinib. So as Frank said, still on this uh, oral topic, um, over nine years in patients with psoriatic arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. 
Um, and this is obviously looking at tofacitinib, um, which has been around the longest of the JAK inhibitors in terms of having data. Uh, and this includes uh, data on patients who were on the five milligram immediate release twice a day dose or the 11 milligram modified release once a day dose. Um, and obviously we've, we've talked about the safety issues raised by um, previous studies in rheumatoid and the fact that we're not really sure how uh, safety looks uh, with PSA sort of in comparison. Um, and this study looked at post-marketing surveillance safety data. So this is from spontaneous and voluntary adverse event reporting. Um, so it's not uh, within a trial. There's no regular assessment for AEs. Um, this is uh, adverse events that got reported uh, as the drug was being used, um, which obviously gives us good data for a very real world population, maybe a bit less selected than the trial populations. But we're probably missing some stuff here. Not every, not every patient and not every clinician will have reported adverse events in, in terms of routine use of the drug. So within this study, there were 73,000 case reports. So um, we, we obviously do report quite a lot of issues, um, but particularly with new drugs. Um, the majority of these were for RA. So 68,000 were in RA, but over 5,000 uh, of the cases reported were for PSA. Um, so still some useful data for psoriatic arthritis. The majority of the data was from North America, uh, and most of the patients who uh, were included in these case reports uh, were women and were patients over 65 years old. So this is kind of an older population where we might consider a higher risk. Um, and for both patients, there was a greater number of adverse events reported on the immediate release, so the five milligram twice a day. Um, but that's because that's used more often. Actually, when you look at reported events per 100 patient years, it was higher with the modified release, the 11 milligrams once a day dose. And perhaps unsurprisingly, um, the most common issues that got reported uh, were the things that you might expect. So um, the drug not being effective in some cases, um, people using the drug off label, um, pain, um, which is always difficult to work out whether that's the drug or the disease, um, and headaches. Um, and it was pretty similar, really, between the psoriatic arthritis and the rheumatoid patients. Um, overall, um, as we said, they had higher uh, issues reported with the modified release formulation. Um, and the number of events reported seemed to be higher in women um, and higher in younger patients as well. Um, but this gives us a little bit of data um, from real world reporting, which I think is helpful. Um, it didn't particularly help or identify major issues in terms of the serious side effects, um, but obviously they're going to be quite small numbers and that's going to be hard to analyse. And this is all spontaneous reporting, so there's going to be some bias, um, perhaps patients on the modified release getting um, adverse events reported more often, um, potentially women and older patients having that reported more often as well. Um, so it it's interpreting this with caution, I think, um, but suggesting that overall the reported side effects seem to be quite similar between RA and PSA in a sort of routine real world data set. Sure. So um, some long term data, big, big numbers, a little bit of reassurance, but we take it with a grain of salt. So I kind of think of this in three clinical settings and I'd love your thoughts on it. New patients commencing a jack 
because it's an appropriate thing for them and how you handle that discussion. Number two is the patient doing brilliantly, who's been on a jack for three years and has many risk factors. What are you going to do? And then third group is the patient also doing well, but has an infarct or has a lung cancer, having smoked for 60 pack years of cigarettes. How are you going to manage that third group? So the new patient I think we've discussed, you think about yeah, I think the risk Frank factors. Frank covered that quite nicely. Clearly, Germany has a very nice system for that. <laughs> but I think so we, what are you going to do with the patient who's doing similar. really well? Someone who's doing really well on a jack, but they've really got many risk factors. Are you going to stop and change? Or what are you going to do, Frank? First of all, we have to take into consideration what does it costs to bring it to the state right now so so if it was very easy to achieve this remission with this product so prescribing a jack inhibitor um, disease activity in all domains drops down immediately and stay low for the rest of the time then i would say it's not a very difficult to treat situation and with respect to all the risk factors then i would say to move up to another let's say maintenance therapy is not at a high risk to get a flare and then go for it. But of course, if you deal with a lot of different treatment options, it took you years to bring the patient in the remission state. I would argue, so keep your history in mind and what, what we have tried to achieve, what we have right now, I would say, of course, we optimizing all the risk factors we can optimize. We uh, monitoring you carefully but I think the, the highest risk overall is an uncontrolled disease. Uh, and therefore, if it costs a lot to bring it, stay on it. If it was very easy, maybe it's easy to, main, to go to another maintenance therapy. That, that's what would be my approach uh, in this individual question. Laura? Yeah, I think I, I would agree. It's, it's down to the individual situation of that patient and a shared decision-making um, approach. So I think if patients are really stuck and don't have many options, then, you know, a lot of patients would say, actually, I will take that risk. Um, I'm feeling better. It's the only thing that's controlled my disease. I've struggled to get here. Um, I, I, I am happy to take that risk. Um, and then I think that third group where you have had something happen, not just a risk factor, but a happening, Again, it's going to be shared decision making, but it's very difficult, I think, in patients who have had recent malignancies, for example, we don't have good data comparing the drugs that we have available. We have concerns about a number of our drugs. Um, we have registry data that seems to show maybe a slightly increased risk for quite a lot of the therapies that we use, um, but not by a huge amount. They're obviously always excluded from studies. Um, so again, it comes back to shared decision making. We've had a patient recently who had done brilliantly on TNF for years, um, stopped it with a bowel cancer. Uh, and actually, we we talked to him about it and said, we're not really sure that anything else is going to be hugely safer. It didn't look like he was a good candidate for rituximab. Um, and so we ended up going back onto the TNF because he'd been brilliant on that for 11 years. And actually, he's now under regular surveillance for the cancer. Um, so there is somebody keeping a close eye and we've made a decision with the um, the surgeons treating him as well that that just seemed to be the best option for him. 
Yeah, we've, I'm sure we've all got patients, like I've got a breast cancer patient who did brilliantly on alumumab, developed a breast cancer, the surgeon stopped it, she flared badly, she begged to go back on, has been back on successfully for years as a result. Yeah. So I think that um, what's interesting is that a lot of registry data, the and, you know, Coravitas, the Swedish, et cetera, et cetera, don't show the risks with these jacks that that oral surveillance study showed. But it was an event-driven, head-to-head, hard to ignore. Yes, now, I, I think there's a dose response with MACE and with serious infection and understandable. I don't really buy the malignancy story myself because of the imbalance in smoking at baseline by chance. For example, there was 40 less smokers ever smokers in TNF, and there were about 50 more chronic smokers on the TOFA side compared to chronic smokers on the TNF side. So out of 1,400 patients, you had something like 120 imbalance, and the malignancy was driven by lung cancer, 13 events versus two events. And if you simply shifted three or four from one group to the other, you would completely eliminate a lung cancer risk, which drove the malignancy data. There's no doubt about the skin, and we check skin every year because we're the skin cancer capital of the world. There's a skin signal, but so there is with methotrexate, with azathioprine, with cyclosporin, with lots of the drugs that we use as a skin signal. TNFs have a skin signal. So that's on one side. And for example, melanoma was five to one in the TNF side. Mm-hmm. Prostate cancer was three to one on the TNF side. So these things, I think, can be um, overblown. The registries have given us reassurance around the world, but until the baricitinib second head-to-head event-driven RCT comes out, we have to be cautious, like you, everyone is saying, with the safety signals, VTE, MACE, et cetera. Um, but it was very difficult because one drug, one disease, class being slapped with a black box for every indication. So it really is a watch this space, and we try and individualise risk and benefit in all our patients. Yeah. So I think... Um, Unless you have any more comments, I want to thank you for joining us for this PSA podcast brought to you by CSF. Really hope you've enjoyed it and found it useful. If you did, don't forget to subscribe to our channels on YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from so that you don't miss any future episodes. If you want to read more about what we've discussed today and you can read the papers and look at them for yourself and get some slide kits, go over to cytokinesignaling.com where you'll find detailed summaries, the slides, the papers, and we look forward to catching up with you next time. And we thank our two colleagues for their time and trouble. Thanks, guys.